The Spin-Off Podcast Network. You're listening to Business is Boring, a podcast that reckons it's anything but. Business is Boring is brought to you by SparkLab, offering inspiration and practical advice to help businesses find their edge. To hear more about SparkLab, including details about the latest events, workshops, and business tools, visit sparklab.co.nz. And now, here's your host, Simon Pound. Kia ora koutou katoa. Welcome to Business is Boring. Design disruptor, creative boundary pusher, and cultural provocateur, Dr. Leila Ajaralu, embodies the innovation that ignites positive change. An award-winning designer, sociologist, and sustainability expert, Ajaralu is internationally recognized as a leading force in the movement for a sustainable and circular future. As a social entrepreneur, she is the founder of the creative agency Disrupt Design and the award-winning experimental knowledge lab, The Unschool of Disruptive Design, and has been named a champion for the earth by the UN. We're super lucky to get to chat to her in connection to the SparkLab Future State event, and Dr. Leila Ajaralu joins us now via a video call from Melbourne to chat her journey and the change we can make if we design the world the way we want to see it. Tanakwe, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Hey, let's start um, start out with kind of your interest in design. As th- th- There's this great idea you share about designing the world the way we want to see it, but you actually went into design and then left at the beginning of your career, right? Eh? <laughs> yeah. So like any young person, when I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, I weighed up the pros and cons of the kind of career path that I thought that I'd have. And design seemed like a really fascinating one. Like it seemed like I wasn't going to be bored, essentially. And at the time, I was really frustrated with how everyday things like remote controls and toothbrushes and things around me were designed. And so it seemed like a great career path to go into product design, which is where you get to redesign the everyday things that fill our lives. And it was during my first couple of years of study that I was exposed to the idea of the Gaia theory, which is a scientific theory that everything in nature is interconnected. And it was during this um, exposition of uh, the reality of the beautiful kind of complex impacts of our actions that the Gaia theory kind of let me realize that I had a bit of an existential crisis, to be completely honest. And I decided to quit design so that I could go and find a career that would actually enable me to solve the problems that I now knew existed. And that led me to becoming a social scientist, majoring in sustainability. And the social science part was like, you know, one of these moments where you find something you didn't know that you basically are in love with. (laughs) The moment I got into sociology and questioning and understanding the human experience, the complexity and hot mess that our minds are, how economics work. I just, my brain lit up and I actually did extremely well and, you know, and I ended up going on to do a PhD where I combined design and sociology. And, and so I have a PhD in industrial design after all of that and, and an undergraduate in social science. Ah, cool. And it's, it is interesting, isn't it? In that design should be, or in theory is human centered. But so often it's kind of client brief or constraint centered, right? 
I mean, there's so many ways to to define design. I mean, I think for the average person, design is perhaps a little misunderstood because if you watch a TV show on design, it's going to be like interior design or where no luxury fashion design, for example. But design is pretty much everything you see around you. Basically, every product, every physical space, even policies that governments put into play are by design. It's where we take um, the resources around us and we reform them to meet the needs of humans. And so actually design is an extremely anthropocentric endeavor, meaning it's very much, yes, focused on humans. But when you say human centric, you mean something else, which is a field of design where um, humans are put central to the decision making so that it's more ergonomic and more um, supposedly more you know, ethical. But really, really design is inherently a commercial activity. Um, it is really the driving engine of GDP and growth, and it's an incredible tool. It makes the world work better. It makes our lives more enjoyable. It also means that we can be more efficient and connected, and you know, it's incredible as a tool, but it's also used in a way to kind of unfortunately manipulate and uh, make things more desirable for a producer, not necessarily the consumer. So there's like this really, it's a complex field, and that's for me, incredible opportunity in that. I always say if we designed the world, then we can design it better. And a lot of the challenges that we face right now, be it climate change or social inequality, design is a tool that can transform those issues into opportunities. And so for me, it's like there's this incredible tool that we created that we use right now quite, um, you know, commercially versus uh, socially or, or environmentally, we could really change the way design affects the world. And so that's kind of my big passion. Yeah. And as part of that big passion is actually getting people to get the right perspective to see that right, to understand that everything's a design choice. And so as a result, we can choose to do it better. Tell me about how you came to kind of uh, like really understand the centrality of that that idea to making things better and some of the work that you do through the unschool and with the disruptive design kind of model uh, to get people thinking like that. Yeah, so in my own journey, as I was studying and learning about all of these different things, I realised that um, I personally, and I don't know if, if you or your listeners feel the same way, I found my education not very conducive to learning or at least liking learning. And I found that um, in my own process of getting to that point where I uncovered the thing that I was really passionate about and that lit a fire of purpose inside me that made work and learning an enjoyable and even like extremely motivating thing wasn't sitting in an English class, you know, and then traipsing off to a math class or even in my design degree, I felt like what I needed to do was to be able to explore the world in a more uh, participatory way and to um, learn through the experiences that I had and be able to then articulate them in ways that made sense for my career. And so that's kind of experiential learning. And that was um, one of the things that drove me to found the Unschool, because as I had finished my PhD and done a good, you know, 10 years of higher education, whilst I was, I am extremely grateful for everything that I learned, I also felt like it was extremely inefficient. And as a, a change maker, as somebody who wanted to really sincerely invest my resources into helping change the world. I don't think I learned the tools of doing that, such as agency 
Agency is the ability for an individual to see that they have impact and effect on the world around them. And that connects to something called a sphere of influence, which we all have. And we can grow that over time intentionally. And these are all techniques and tools of like the social sciences that if we're given the um, perspective and agency, we're able to actually wayfind ourselves through the world in a more um, nuanced and personalized way. And if we can also then tap into the things that give us purpose and that we're passionate about and that are actually going to have value to us, we can then contribute more value to the world around us. So in the UnSchool, we have over 100 courses that are from short courses through to full unmasters programs in how to make effective change. And the disruptive design method is an approach to doing that. And it combines three parts, uh, mining, landscaping, and building. I used a construction metaphor, so we can all stick with this idea that, you know, if they're going to build a building, we need to have this exoskeleton, the scaffolding that holds up the structure. And then once it's nice and strong, you can take that away and you've got this new, unique physical structure. So the disruptive design method is that scaffolding that forces us to think differently about the problems we're trying to address. And so the first phase is mining, where we dive under the obvious parts of the problem and you really go ferreting for all the bits and pieces that you didn't know. You know, it's this kind of curiosity mindset. It's where we suspend the need to solve because humans love solving problems. It gives us a, a, like a neuro boost. It gives us a dopamine hit. But often we try to solve a problem with limited information or certainly limited experiences. And so in the mining phase, we're really deeply trying to understand the nuances of the problem. And we pull these pieces together into the landscaping phase, which is a systems perspective. And it's where we, it's like, imagine you've kept, collected all these pieces of a jigsaw puzzle and you start to put them together. And then you kind of take this 50,000 um, foot perspective, the bird's eye view, the one you get from the aeroplane, where suddenly the landscape looks extremely different. And you're not kind of stuck in the one part. You're kind of being able to see the whole thing. And then you can identify areas of intervention and from that, you can build interventions that affect change. And so this is actually based on a number of really incredible theories, such as systems thinking, um, participatory uh, design and research, and then, of course, following a traditional design process at the end of, of ideation, iteration, prototyping, and testing. And the whole process you run through multiple times until you get an outcome that's within your resource set, that's within your sphere of influence, that will have a positive impact on the system that you're trying to affect change within. Yeah, magic. And that kind of framework or, or, or approach to looking at problems and seeing how we can, um, you know, redesign the, the systems and everything's a design choice. Tell me about the journey of like you personally then agitating and helping to advance these ideas in the world and how that's a really big part of it. Because the first thing is to kind of know we can do it, right? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Like, I think I've just followed my my interests, right? And I'm a designer. So design is a tool that helps communicate things in more efficient and effective ways. So we've been able to create lots of really cool tools and resources over the last 20 years of being an entrepreneur in this space. I even at one point became a farmer to learn how nature worked. So because I kind of follow my my, I would say my own pain points, like I, be, I was named champion of the earth, as you mentioned, in 2016 by the United Nations Environment Program, which obviously is an extreme honor. I got it for my work in advancing science and innovation, making it more accessible for sustainability. But I also realized in that moment that I really didn't know how nature worked. It was quite embarrassing. <laughs> so I was like, oh, this is awkward. I just got this really big award and 
I knew a lot about social systems. I knew a lot about industrial systems because I'd worked in this field called life cycle assessment. But I actually had grown up in a city. I'd grown like one tomato plant in my life. I really didn't understand nature. And so I used that knowledge gap as a motivator for a pretty big project where I took on an abandoned farm in rural Portugal and I learned how to be an olive farmer um, and an organic, uh, small-scale organic agriculture uh, experimentation. And then I created this thing called a brain spa, which was where you went to have your neurons recharged, not your body. Anyway, thing is, is that uh, that, unfortunately, that project was a casualty of COVID and and no longer do I get to make my own olive oil. But it was a really amazing, phenomenal experience. I have no um, no uh, regrets in all the failures that I made, <laughs> which <laughs> were a lot. And again, using the disruptive design approach, that's kind of the, uh, the whole ethos of this is that like, you know, the world is available for us to explore. It is so complex and so chaotic and so beautiful, but we live in a very kind of rigid, r- structured um, uh, perspective because that's what we're taught, right? Like our modern education system is about reductionism. It's about breaking the world down into manageable parts. And th- that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that if we stay stuck in that perspective, we don't get to see the nuances of things going on. And for sure, I learned some of the most magical things, deeply participating in nature and being um, reliant on those systems for my own sustenance, you know, growing all the food and so forth. So I would say like the change that I've been able to affect in the world is a byproduct of living this, this kind of conviction and passion that I have. And I guess that it's like an embodied leadership for for lack of a better term, you know, being able to admit that there's lots of things I don't know, um, but also then using that as the foundation for inquiry and learning new things. So I don't know. I think it's just a natural byproduct if you're really, if you're really passionate and I've got a lot of energy for this stuff. So I think it just happens that you end up having influence um, on other people, but I really do hope that the kind of influence I have is to give other people agency to make their own change and to not rely on other systems um, to give you the support that you need to actually be the kind of, um, you know, change agent in the world around you. Yeah, I, I, I love that idea of, you know, to get a gong that's at this global level, like from the United Nations as a champion for the earth, and then to go back and, you know, to those principles that you're talking about, try to make a positive impact of something that's within your sphere and, you know, make the whole world better by making the small bit of it you can control better, which is such a lovely idea. I I wouldn't say control, but you can participate because, you know, humans like to control the world, but we don't. We actually are very much uh, in a dynamic, uh, interdependent relationship with the world around us. And as climate change is presenting, we're in control of nothing. (laughs) It's really not got the final say on us but I yeah exactly like for me it's really you know I feel very fortunate because in my my kind of professional studies I did end up doing a PhD via practice which is where you use your creative approach to explore your contribution to new knowledge and and it really set me up to be very into the idea that that everything is an opportunity to learn and everything is an opportunity to to make change basically. And so that kind of has meant that every time I personally encounter some challenge or issue that uh, is is either personal or professionally um, giving me some complexity, that really drives me to then find a creative way of learning through that. And 
that is why I think my career has taken so many twists and turns. And, you know, we, we have the unschool, we have also now this new platform called Swivel Skills, which is a corporate sustainability training platform, which is hilarious because unschools is like this disruptive, provocative, like cheeky place where professionals go to learn how to engage with a positively disruptive approach to their career. And Swivel Skills is where companies pay for their staff to learn about the circular economy and climate action, you know? So it's like a kind of polar opposites, but it's the same content. It's the same ideas. It's just how we present them and make them um, accessible and engaging to the particular audiences that we're trying to achieve um, impact with it. Wonderful. And we'll be back in a moment to talk through how you can incorporate ideas of circularity and sustainable thinking in your work. Spark is proud to partner with the Sustainable Business Network and the Climate Action Toolbox. The free Climate Action Toolbox can provide you with simple step-by-step guides to measure and reduce your emissions. Help lead the way to a low-carbon future for New Zealand. Visit sparklab.co.nz forward slash sustainability to find out more. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Welcome back to Business is Boring, where we're talking with Dr. Leila Ajaralu. Hey, so tell us about some of these ideas. Uh, you, you know, I was, um, if anyone uh, listening would like to get like a really, you, you know, d- deep and good good look at these ideas, there's a couple of fantastic videos online, uh, a TED talk and also a, um, a great talk that you did in Sweden, was it? Oh yeah, I, I talk everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and like there were some really cool ideas around the things that we value as people versus the things that we should value. And I just wonder if we might just start this part by um by jumping into that idea about why we should, and of course it makes so much sense, but why we should be valuing bees a lot more than we value diamonds. Right. So, you know, you said people actually, it's interesting you you made a comment where you said something like what the what we as people value and i think that we have to see ourselves as agents of this system that's kind of curated or constructed um certainly in kind of the modern western world where we value consumerism we value the ability to make money and then trade that money for goods that meet our needs that make our lives more enjoyable and that system is inherently unsustainable. It's not to say that we can't have our needs met, but it's definitely that we don't value the systems that sustain life or that even uh, uh, give us the resources to make the goods and services. So as it stands right now, all of nature is not valued by our economic system. GDP does not account for any of the natural services that are provided by nature. So if you have a tree, a tree is basically invisible according to our current economic model until it's chopped down and turned into chopsticks. Only then does it have any value in inverted commas. So what we've done is we've created a system where the very fundamental things that sustain life, that sustain the economy, 
are not valued and they're seen as infinite. And therefore, because they're not valued, they're basically exploited. And so our economy is based on this kind of exploitation and extraction model, which is what is inherently unsustainable and what the circular economy and sustainability and even the kind of newer version of this idea of regeneration and reconnecting to Indigenous and First Nations knowledges is helping us to reconfigure what is valuable. Because I almost guarantee you, if I asked you to reflect right now on what is valuable to you, it's, you, you know, yeah, okay, you might be like my Nintendo PlayStation, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I would also say, you know, your family, your friends, your pets, your um something that's sentimental because somebody gave it to you that maybe doesn't, um, is not in your life anymore. And certainly I think you would value nature if you had a choice of having no nature at all or living in, um, you know, some sort of scenario where there are trees and birds and you are actually participating in the kind of um, systems that do give us so much benefit as humans than you would. And so there's this kind of misalignment. And so your question is referring to a, a funny TEDx talk I did where, you know, a long time ago, like 500 years ago in England, pineapples were worth $10,000. And that's because at the time, pineapples were from a tropic, tropical countries that, you know, the Brits were off colonizing and they were so rare, like they couldn't grow them in England and they were the most sweetest thing in nature that they could have. And so people would hire, literally hire pineapples and take them to parties to show their wealth. They would carry around pineapples. And to this day, if you're ever in England, you will notice some buildings have pineapples on them and even some um, some parts of London where they have like the, you know, those, um, what are they called? The manholes that they go into the ground, like the metal ones, they have pineapples on them. So it's a very hilarious story where this perceivably now invaluable thing, pineapples, were ex more valuable than diamonds and jewels because diamond and jewels, they'd already figured out how to conquer them, but the they couldn't figure out how to grow pineapples. And so your question about bees is that like bees literally provide all of the resort, uh, the kind of uh, pollination to enable half of our food systems that we rely on to exist. And obviously there's all of these um, threats to bee populations and that is therefore like eroding our future sustainability from a food perspective, yet we value diamonds which are not valuable because we can manufacture them and the only value is, is really attributed to the social value that we prescribe to them. And if you want to like do a fun research, you can go and look at the history of De Beers and the company and how it kind of manipulated the idea of the value of diamonds by controlling the market so we have this false value for things that are really actually abundant because, you know, now they can make diamonds out of carbon. Um, and yet we don't value bees. Bees are not valued in our economic system. So this kind of misalignment of value um, means that ultimately as a society, we have constructed a reality that is really false. And it's not to say that diamonds aren't, you know, pretty things that people should perhaps enjoy if they're created ethically. It's more to say that we need to realign our value set uh, if we are going to be able to live sustainably on this beautiful planet into the future. You mentioned pineapples there as part of that, and they are a great metaphor for the way that the current system does take things from being valuable and rare to being commonplace and standard, and that the external cost of that is... Costa Rica has all kinds of environmental and social issues related to the way that 
pineapples are, are farmed as a monocrop there using extraordinary, like extraordinarily appalling chemicals and practices that we completely ignore. So they can be, you know, three bucks a tin at the grocery store. And then everyone can argue over whether or not they should be on pizzas. Yeah, yeah. And we, we, we've just we've just externalised and ignored all this awfulness that's taken this thing that was rare and difficult to produce to make it uh, ubiquitous. You say externalised, and that's actually the term, I didn't mention it, but it's called externalities. It's the economic term to define how we don't value the true cost of things. So nearly all of the negative impacts of our economy are externalised. They're they're not accounted for. So for example, right now, if there's an oil spill, the oil spill, the impact of the oil spill is only accounted for in regards to the economic activity that's produced from people having to clean it up. So we don't account for the environmental damage that the oil spill created. We only measure in GDP terms, the people who go, the chemicals used, the people employed in cleaning the oil spill. And so actually GDP goes up in times of war because the more guns, the more caskets, the more, the more, it's like, it's so perverse because even the person who created it, Simon Kuznicks, who, who came up with the concept of GDP, um, he even said, it is a terrible tool to measure the welfare of our, our, our um, communities because we do not account for externalities. So, you know, we really have a system of measuring success that is blind to the things that cause us a lot of harm and also ignorant to the systems that sustain life on this earth. How do we go about redesigning? So what are some practical things people can kind of like take from here? I mean, they can visit the UnSchool and uh, get, get involved in those programs. But what are some practical ways, you, you know, back to those mental models we are talking about at the beginning, how do we go about noticing the the way things are set up as a design choice <laughs> and, you know, um, maintaining things the way they are is a design choice and then go, hey, so we actually have the choice to change up the way these systems work. Yeah. So one of the, the key tools to, to kind of starting a process of transformation is to understand the systems that you're existing within. And, you know, there's this body of work called systems thinking. I've written extensively about it freely on Medium, which explains kind of how to do it. But ultimately, systems thinking is about starting with the whole before the parts and understanding the relationships between the obvious parts of the system rather than focusing on what we call the tip of the iceberg. And so it's very important that we start with that full picture perspective. And then we start to explore the ways in which we're contributing to inequitable or unsustainable systems and how we can then contribute to redesigning that. So there's some super simple tools that people can use. Um, there's one called life cycle assessment, which is used or life cycle thinking used to assess the environmental impacts of a product. I actually have a free uh, redesign toolkit where you can essentially go through the seven stages of redesigning a product or service to fit within the circular economy. And essentially there's also... Um, there's a lot of uh, like practical everyday tools that, or tips that you could use, like divesting from uh, banks or service providers that are contributing to climate change, which is pretty simple. Just find an ethical bank for your company or for your own personal savings. There's many out there. And these kinds of actions, whilst they might seem small or insignificant, they add up. And one thing I've learned, and I'm sure all the business people listening know, is that decisions are made in business 
based on the, the accumulative action of individuals. So the data, the big data of all the different things people are doing, those trends are what then determine what products and services are made available on the marketplace. So our individual actions do have an effect, especially when we're able to encourage other people to consider them as well. And I think the last three to four years, we've seen a really significant shift in the conversation, um, both at a policy level with lots of really incredible, you know, climate action, circular economy, sustainability, environmental, um, you know, focused you know, anti-greenwashing so that the fashion industry, for example, can't continue to like misdirect people. So there's a lot happening and partly that's happening because of consumer preferences and choices and also through procurement decisions in companies. So we can all absolutely contribute to designing that better world that we want to live in. And that's partly because every action we take in the economy actually designs the future that we want. So everything we buy, everything we click on, all of the choices that we make do have an impact. And that's not to say then you need to like radically change your life tomorrow um, and kind of live in a sense of guilt and shame by any means. That doesn't, it's not really productive. What is productive is finding the areas of influence that you have and taking steps towards continual improvement. And ultimately our goal is to get to a regenerative future where we give back more than we take. But in the process of getting there, we all have to go through a series of, you know, questions, unlearning and really changing the way we do business um, because business is one of the driving engines of everything we've talked about. And it's one of the coolest tools that we have to actually change supply chains, to have a positive impact on the planet, both is you know, in the sense of like how biodiversity is affected through the, the materials you're using or how much you contribute to climate change through the suppliers you're engaging with. So it's really a case of getting started. And if you're already on the journey, amazing. This is a process of continual transformation. We're learning as we go and we're sharing ideas and experiences to help us get to that better outcome. Yeah, this idea of like, um, you know, every dollar you spend is a vote for the kind of world you want to live in. And everything you choose to read and support helps to shape the way the world is, is, is a really interesting thing. And I, I've seen you talk about the way that it's not to say that, hey, being in a consumer system is great. And so just, you know, cho choosing the things you buy is going to be the end result. It's about kind of creating that momentum for change and show that change is possible to then be able to create more change. Is that a fair way to sum up that kind of idea? Yeah, and I come I come at change from a like nerdy social constructionist perspective. I believe that we are like we kind of soak in the system that we are constructed in and therefore absorb all of the ideas, perspectives, practices. And so we are mostly in Western worlds socialized to be consumers and to contribute to production through, you know, economic activity. And that that has created a massive disconnect from ourselves, from the planet. And we seek out rewards in ways that we're told will give us um, feelings of happiness and contentment. But most of the time, that's short-lived. And this is like a whole other philosophical uh, deep dive. But for me, change is really this process of it's a relationship between you and your actions and the bigger system. And if anyone really wants to nerd out on this, there's a guy called Anthony Giddens who came up with this thing called structuration theory, which is essentially the idea that the structure, the system, and the agents within it are in this relationship where the, the structure enforces how the agents should operate. The only way the structure changes is when a collective 
agents within the system make different choices to disrupt the structure. I hope that didn't freak everybody out a little bit, but basically (laughs) if you think about it, it's like everything's in a dynamic relationship. And so those, the, the absolutely we each have the capacity to affect change. It's just that how big or wide or broad and also change is not related in time or space. So like you could take an action today and it could take like um, 20 years to ripple through the system. Right. And so some change makers really commit to what uh, this amazing woman I know called um, Antoinette Carroll says is, is being a, as, as being a cathedral builder, like cathedrals take hundreds of years to build. And so sometimes you're contributing to a lineage of change where, you know, you're building on the things of people who are no longer with us and you are contributing to people who don't exist yet, which is like, gives me goosebumps and makes me think of, you know, the incredible nature of humanity and the potential of our species to actually be something really productive, um, in relation to this planet, the only known life-sustaining planet in the universe. Yeah, well, I absolutely love that. And I think, you know, it's so easy to be overwhelmed because of the awfulness in the world and because of climate concerns and anxiety and because of XXX and X. But unless you feel you can make a change, people become hopeless or people don't have that agency. And so I love this idea of, um, you know, creating feelings and understanding the agency that people have. Yeah, I think what's really important is to remember that hope uh, is is uh, the one thing that a depressed system wants you to not have. So, however you can find it and and treasure it, uh, you will always then have the power to overcome the challenges. Because hope is 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 really not just hope, but joy as well. Like, you know we really do have an incredible opportunity here. As I said, we're on literally the only known life sustaining planet in the entire universe. It's magic that this exists. It's magic that we're here. And yes, there's travesty and there's war and there's famine and there's a climate crisis. And there are many things to think make the world a a terrible place, but equally there is like, butterflies and dolphins (laughs) and there are moments of pure joy and human connection and there is equally as much um mystery and magic in this beautiful world that there is tragedy and trauma and we need to really hold those two things in perspective and be realistic about the challenges in front of us but also make sure that we're holding on to the potential for us to overcome them because you know what all of human history we have we've we've overcome a lot of challenges and and this is just another one of those inflection points or moments in time where it depends on how many of us commit to actually rising above the inertia and actually contributing to the kinds of world that we could potentially all enter into yeah love it and as a as a kind of final thought you know, your, your work has been incredibly influential. Uh, you, you've, you've worked with, you know, thousands of people who have gone through the programs. You've, you've uh, you know, shared the message, been recognised, you know, by, by the UN to have that extra platform to be to be doing this. So in many ways, you know, you could look at this and go, you know, um, there's success. But I'd be really interested to know kind of what will success be for you and, and, and what drives you? <laughs> um, I mean, success it's a complex thing, right? Cause like once you get a bit of it, then it's never enough. <laughs> you know, it's like, Ooh, I could do more things. Um, for me, success is really the moments of seeing the impact of the things I do. And that's often absolutely not uh, linear. So <clears throat> sometimes I'll meet somebody and 
like 20 years ago, I would have run some class in some obscure school that I can't even remember going to. And some kid was exposed to these ideas and it like changed the trajectory of their life. Just as my engineering professor telling me about the Gaia theory absolutely changed the trajectory of my life for the better. And I'm very grateful for that. And so I feel that that's success. Success is in those moments of transference. And obviously it's very uh, humbling and, and, you know, ego boosting to get awards and to be recognized. And uh, I love being on stages and sharing ideas and interacting with audiences. It's a really a pleasurable and, and fun part of my life. But actually it's those kind of micro moments of interaction with people that is the most rewarding, the most touching. And at this point in time, for me, success is not about the magnitude of impact. It's about the participation in in this in the things that I didn't know I needed to know in my on my own in my own life. And that's certainly right now it's very much about connecting with uh, First Nations knowledge, being an Australian. I think it's a real travesty that I grew up not learning anything about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and wisdom. And given that I work in sustainability and systems change and the circular economy, all of these principles are embedded in First Nations wisdom all over the world. And it's something that I, I have now identified as a really incredible um space for growth. And, uh, I really am very excited about the success in, in being, um, connected to some of those uh, ideas and wisdom that were previously repressed. And hopefully I can help expose more people to that. And you being from New Zealand, you are so lucky to have Maori culture to, to, to connect with. And, and I think those of us from countries that were colonized, we have a lot of work to do to lean into the incredible wisdom and knowledge that is right there that for you know, 60 to 100,000 years was how humans lived sustainably on this beautiful planet. So that to me is is really the big opportunity for success now. Yeah, 100%. So thank you so much for sharing uh, the, some of your work so far with us today. It's been such a pleasure to get to chat to you and can't wait to see where you go next. That's Dr. Leila Ajaralu. Kia ora. Thank you so much for having me. So thank you to Dr. Leila Ajaralu. Thank you to you for listening and for everyone who helps make this happen, like our producer, Samuel Robinson. Do follow Businesses Boring wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to rate and leave a review if you like what we do. E ra. From the Spinoff Podcast Network, that was Businesses Boring, brought to you by SparkLab. Make sure you're following Businesses Boring wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information on SparkLab, visit sparklab.co.nz. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.